You know, it's always amazing, like after a November election. I get so many calls for the spring election. And they'll be like, well, what party are these people? Well, the spring election, they always have. Always have. Maybe. Because we got more people voting than normal. Hey, David. Hey. I wish they wouldn't have told me about the communication. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Testing, testing, one, two, three. They must have not liked you, Tom, if you're not on it anymore. I don't think these guys had to say I think Tom just basically moved people around. Yeah. Come on. It was Wisconsin Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. That was a
Good evening and welcome to the Common Council meeting for Tuesday, May 11th. Call this meeting to order and it looks like everybody has checked in. Please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Okay, item C is public comment period. At this time, the council president will recognize members of the public who have indicated a desire to address the council upon recognition by the council president. Persons may address the council first stating their name and address. The council may act on emergency matters introduced by members of the public. Do we have any, Mr. Pinker? Good evening, William Penker, 600 Sycamore Avenue. Uh, my comments tonight are from the perspective of a longtime government watcher and do not assume any other perspective. The focus will be on agenda item V from the Common Council meeting on April 27. And at that time, there was comment and discussion about appointments of citizens to committees, boards, and commissions. As a government watcher, I am aware of the appointment process and its timelines. Others may have little or no knowledge about these. Publicizing the roles of the various committees, boards, and commissions, and the way to be considered for an appointment is a worthy activity. And hopefully, this will help to attract new faces to participation in local government. However, New faces may not appear if meeting times are inconvenient or unreasonable. They may not appear if the ability to physically observe or monitor meetings is hindered. And we all must remember it is Wisconsin's public policy that all meetings of all state and local governmental bodies shall be held in places reasonably accessible to members of the public. As Mrs. Penker noted to me, when she heard about uh, possible publicity of the committees. As new faces come forward, be cautious that any infusion of new faces does not result in a loss of institutional memory. This is something Alderman Wagner mentions frequently. This can have a serious consequence for the continuity and progress of any of the board's committees or commissions. Whenever publicity occurs, it must be across the full spectrum of media resources and do not limit your efforts to a small part of that spectrum. And perhaps a well-developed effort in publicity could become a model for other communities seeking to increase public participation in local government. The comments and discussion related to the appointments to the Police and Fire Commission raise a number of issues and concerns. Given the focus on the commission, a group which is, as noted in public comments recorded in your minutes, an arrogant, untouchable, cancerous group of kingmakers in need of five new members, it is not unreasonable to expect numerous applicants for any vacancies that might have arisen. All that needed to be done was to contact City Hall and say or write, 
Should a vacancy occur on the Board of Police and Fire Commissioners, I would like to be considered as a candidate to fill that vacancy. As Mr. Witzel noted, only one letter was received, and apparently those wanting change were not waiting in the wings. Appointments of citizens to committees, boards, and commissions are governed by timelines and process in local ordinances 2.8687888 and 2.95. Ordinance 2.95 further references the state statute related to police and fire commissions, 62.13. This statute clearly defines the timeline for an appointment to a five-year term on the police and fire commission. As part of the appointment process, the public must recognize timelines are not extended two, three, or more weeks in order to find candidates. The timelines and the dates are specific. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Penker. Are there any other citizens wishing to comment? Hi there. Uh, my name is Ashley Frederick, uh, and I am owner and co-owner and broker of Next Home Hub City. Uh, and I just wanted to speak about item L, which is the uh, city subdivision. Um, and also I wanted to mention that Rita Blinker with Century 21 and Jenny Shaner with um, First Weber couldn't be here this evening, but they did want everyone to know that uh, they are on the same page as with the items that I'm going to share. So um, kind of going back a couple of years ago, I started attending the EDB meetings about 2018, uh, just voicing my concerns as a realtor about the lack of inventory. And at that time, we probably had about an average of 50 houses for sale in Marshfield. Um, so come to 2021, and today there's 12 homes for sale in Marshfield. Um, and that's a range from zero to a million. Um, above 300, there's three houses for sale. Um, so when we're looking at recruiting to Marshfield, um, we're coming out up against a pretty big struggle. And my concerns are that, you know, we'd like to recruit um, families. We'd like to have families stay in Marshfield, but if we don't have adequate housing, I'm not sure how that can happen. Um, a couple of, you know, other notes that I've made, uh, there are 50 houses right now that are currently under contract um, waiting to close. So that's also great. That's 50 people that are making a shift in some fashion. Um, when I spoke at the clinic, they did state that I could share that uh, over the last year, they've had a 20% increase uh, in hires in both uh, new physician and advanced practice clinicians. And today they are actively recruiting for 39 of those positions. So my concern is when they hire 39 new employees to the Marshfield location, where are they going to go? You know, obviously we have some rentals available, but with interest rates, people are uh, jumping at the opportunity to purchase um, and we might not be able to fill that need. So what has happened over the last couple of years um, in working with the clinic and other employers in town is that people just choose not to come to Marshfield. So if they don't have a place to move their family to, why would they move here? So sometimes what those people do is they choose not to come at all, or they choose to pick a surrounding area. So maybe it's Stevens Point, Wassa, Weston, whatever it might be, which is great for those areas. Great that they're still employed here. But now the issue at a larger scale is that when they are done at night, they don't eat out here in town. They don't spend their weekends here in town. So there's a larger economic impact by them not actually living here. Um, you know, and 
when I'm telling you these numbers, it's within city limits. So obviously there are some areas outside of Marshfield, um, you know, just within the five minute radius that may come up to play, but um, we're talking about city limit here. Um, other things that obviously we weren't, we weren't expecting was COVID. Um, it changed things dramatically, but it also changed the picture for buyers as what they're looking for. So many people are now, you know, both um, mother and father are working from home, which now they've outgrown their space. Again, even if they're living here locally and they want to move into a larger home, they don't have that option. So when I tell people, you know, we talk about new homes, it is a little bit higher. The cost to build today is high, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. So um, I spoke to two concrete guys in the last week. One has 25 basements to put in and one has 15 basements to put in, and that's here in central Wisconsin, and that's only two concrete guys. So for people to say the building's not happening, um, it's not necessarily the case. It does take off some people when costs um, do get higher, but they're still building. And what we want to see then is one that can attract new people to town, but then it gives people in town um, an option to move up so that say their house at 200 now becomes available. So somebody could move up into that and it's a revolving door, if you will, as to get these people into homes. Um, also, you know, I spoke with rail. Um, they currently are uh, recruiting for 10 open positions. And I'm sure if you look around anywhere in town, right, everyone's looking for um, employees, but when we don't have anywhere for them to live with their families, um, I think it's going to get harder and harder to recruit for those positions. Um, what we've also seen is just um, people also don't want to sell their house because they don't have anywhere to go. But, you know, I feel on a larger level, Marshfield has worked um, very hard um, to make Marshfield attractive, right? Um, Sometimes we get stuck in the negative things going on, but there are a lot of positive things going on in Marshfield as well. We can look to the pool, we can look to the athletic complex, um, the library, the YMCA, the STEM edition. I mean, we've poured a ton of money into our town and wouldn't it be great to recruit people to our town to use those things that we've spent money on? Um, but again, if we don't have the adequate housing, we can't uh, attract those people. Um, so, you know, I wanted to keep it short and brief. I know there's a lot um, for you guys to cover tonight, but I guess I just wanted to tell you from somebody that has, you know, boots on the ground, um, we're struggling. Uh, we really, really want to see people come to town, but we as a city need to figure out how to make that work for everyone. Um, so I would strongly suggest uh, that, you know, you listen to have uh, what Josh has to say and that um, we could potentially come up with a plan to move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other citizens who wish to comment? Any other citizens? Third time? Okay, moving on. Uh, item D, approval of the minutes of the April 27th, 2021 regular meeting. A motion for Mr. Fisher and a second for Mr. Rosenditch. Is there any comments? Any? Seeing none, please vote. And that motion carries with all ayes. Item E, staff updates. It's good to see so many staff here with us tonight for a change. Uh, but I don't, I'm not aware of any staff updates unless someone out there has something. Nope. Okay, council president's comments. I have one comment. Uh, this week is National Police Week. Um, I think we can all agree that this is, past year has been a challenging one for the law enforcement community, uh, both nationally and locally. Uh, Marshfield Police, Department is gathering this very moment this evening uh, for their annual Memorial Day service at Wildwood Park. And um, we can't be there and 
maybe some of the citizens can't be there, but I would encourage everyone will take uh, a moment of your time this week to recognize the local officers for their commitment to our public safety. Um, that's all I have. Uh, item G, council comments. Mr. Fisher. Sorry about that. Thank you. I thought the mic was on. Um, I'm going to make some comments and um, I'm going to actually, I typed them up and so I'm going to read them because I wanted to make sure um, that everything I'm about to say, um, I articulate every point. Um, this has been something that's been on my mind for a while. So if you would just give me a moment. Um, I've sat here and listened to multiple comments made by multiple people concerning their views of the council. I've chosen not to respond because first and foremost, I actually do not like council comments. I think my words should be limited to discussion, um, limited to discussion on actual agenda items. However, in this instance, I feel I need to address certain things that are weighing on me. I also think that sadly politics has become mostly theatrics these days instead of governance. And I accept the fact that not everyone is going to like me, my peers, or anyone and everyone in government. I have even sat here and re remained silent while hearing comments made about good people. I am done sitting here and I cannot stay quiet. I'm done listening to people ridicule council members for being elected to think and lead. If you don't like your older person, you have every ability to change that. Every year and every two years, there's a cycle of an election. You have the ability to use your finger, pick up your pen and cast a vote. It's a very, very extremely powerful thing. I'm sure that I will be called a hypocrite now because of saying this because the mayor was removed, not by the voters, but by the council. Let me set the record straight. A verified complaint was brought to us and we had to hold a hearing on the matter. We had to follow state statute and I believe we did our job. If anyone thinks that the council enjoyed that, I would beg to differ. I sat in that closed session with my colleagues. It was not enjoyable. I found zero personal enjoyment in the matter myself. I'm going to make a few comments about specific older persons. I was shocked when a complaint was made against Rebecca Spiros by Mr. Hiller. He has claimed not to be easily intimidated, so I'm still at a loss as to why Rebecca Spiros, or, or excuse me, at a loss as to what Rebecca Spiros said or did to invoke such a complaint, especially since I don't believe Rebecca did anything or said anything wrong. I've also heard people now in the community say they are upset with things that Alderman Hindler said a couple weeks ago. In my opinion, he did absolutely nothing wrong either. He simply said he wanted to heal as a city. I think his intentions were honorable. Whether you disagree with him or not, please do not ridicule someone for a sincere comment. I was hopeful that when a 14-year-old young lady came before us in this very chamber that our conduct would change. I was hopeful that a voice of a young person would silence the old. I truly hope we never forget her words. This community should consider her a hero. 
I know that I do. Anyone who knows me knows that I have strong opinions and I'm not afraid to share them. But I always, I always try to do it, and the key word there is always try, to do it in a respectful manner. You're welcome to love me or hate me, and you're welcome to love or hate my colleagues. But please realize that we are not villains. My colleagues are not villains. You are free to have an opinion, just as I am. But we are all here to do our job, as citizens, as staff, and as all the persons. And until I am removed from office by the voters or by a hearing, I will keep doing my job. And I would encourage my colleagues to do the same. If you want to criticize us for doing what we believe is right, you have every right to do that. But again, I would suggest that we not think that just because we have differing opinions, the other side is a villain. At one time or another, I have disagreed with every single person in this room, and I will continue to disagree with people on certain issues. I believe that's what good governance is, in my opinion. I don't want yes people, I want thoughtful debate. We disagree because my colleagues and I follow our convictions. Those convictions don't always align. Again, if you don't like that, your place is to go to the ballot box. As I was thinking about this, a quote from my childhood came to my mind. It's actually a quote from the Christian Bible that says, the meek shall inherit the earth. I think about that, and I, as we hear those words, we might assume that meek means powerless or weak. If you actually look at the original meaning, meek means something very different. It means power with restraint, meaning someone with a sword could restrain themselves from having to use it. Lance Plimmel, the Wood County board chair, who I consider both a mentor and a friend, once told me early on in my political career that governance is not about power. It's about exhibiting humility, doing what you believe is right, and trying to influence others through thoughtful debate. I believe in the current climate nationally, Lance Plimmel is right. Conflict is inevitable. We are never going to always agree. But how we disagree is, I think, what matters most. Sadly, though, conflict can sometimes reach levels where we lose sight of reason and we begin to believe all conflict is moral and one side is good and the other side is evil. That is simply not true in most cases. I'm starting to wonder if civility is a lost art. I think we can strongly disagree with one another, but still be kind. My mother would always tell me to love my neighbor. I wish I could say I've always taken her advice, but today I'm gonna do that. We can vehemently oppose ideas and still choose to love our neighbors. I refuse to succumb to the mob mentality which is sweeping this nation, and I think on both political sides. I will keep doing what I think is right, and I hope everyone in this community does the same. I'm sure that I'll keep casting votes that will upset you, the public. I will choose to always be kind though, and I hope everyone else will do the same. I will always defend people's right to say whatever they believe is right, but I'm hoping people will do it in a respectful manner. I wish, I wish others did not have to create secret Facebook groups. 
but instead we could have thoughtful discussion on the topics that we care most about. I've actually only had two people in the last 19 months since I've been on council in the entire city ever reach out to me and ask me questions about why I voted a certain way. I wish more would, because you might be surprised at the answer. Whatever happens in the months to come, I hope we can be civil with one another, and most of all, that love wins. Thank you. Mr. Bucci. Boy, I can't follow that. Uh, very well said, Mr. Fisher. Last Monday during our public works meeting, um, I made a misstatement about the disc golf uh, in Brain Park. We were actually talking about parking on Cedar Avenue and uh, that passed the way uh, the individual uh, that wanted the, the change in that. Um, but I made a statement that I said, Mr. Tiffany was involved with the Frisbee golf at one time. I thought that, and I thought that the Frisbee golf at Brain Park was going to go away, but at this time it's not. It's not going away that, that I'm aware of. That was a misstatement. Uh, I confused that with, we all know Hefco Pool, that Frisbee golf area is gone. Um, but they, they have plans. There was a lot of good people working on to make that Frisbee golf thing in Brain Park. And I just want to set the record straight to the citizens that there is no plan that I know of to remove that Frisbee golf at Brain Park. There's going to be some changes there. Um, there's going to be some uh, changes in, uh, I think, some tree cutting and things like that. But they're going to adapt those three holes that are going to be affected, and it's still going to be there. So, citizens, I misspoke, and uh, um, I'm glad that Frisbee Golf will still be at Brain Park. Thank you. Any other council comments? Mr. Hendler. Thank you, Council President. Um, and I believe that, uh, sincerely believe Mr. Fisher's comments uh, were right on target. It has been this entire body, we've made considerable uh, steps in a positive direction. And uh, my comment uh, apparently was misconstrued and uh, I want nothing but the best for the citizens of Marshfield and for the city itself. And I didn't have any other intent with that because as I grew up, one of the things I learned early on in my lifetime was blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. And I will not compromise my thoughts. Thank you. Mr. Fire. Yes, I uh, received a, a grant pay payment notification from the Marshfield Area Community Foundation. Uh, this is a notification that, that the following grants were paid to the Hardacre Park Refresh and Renew Fund, grant 9317. The grantee goes to the city of Marshfield for maintenance, and the amount is $1,196. So they have a, a good fund in there, so it gets money for us every year so. They wanted to make sure that the citizens know that. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Any other council comments? The next item on the agenda is reports from commissions, boards, and committees. 
Any reports from commissions, boards, or committees? Seeing none, we'll move on to item I, consent agenda. You have that before you. Looking for an approval. Uh, motion by Mr. Butke, a second by Mr. Fisher. Any comments on the consent agenda? Seeing none, please vote. That motion carries unanimously. Item J, or we'll skip that because there was no items removed. Item K, presentation on employee compensation program presented by Jen Rakew, Human Resources Director. Jen. Thank you. All right, thank you. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to share this information with you tonight. Uh, Alderman Fisher had requested an update on the compensation program. And so what I wanted to do is just take some time with you tonight to actually do more of a comprehensive review than what we've done in the past. Um, there's a packet in, in each of your, um, on each of your desks so that you can kind of follow along as we go. Um, if you do have questions as we get to the end of this uh, presentation, I'd certainly encourage you to ask. However, I also wanna provide you with an opportunity that if you do have questions following this and you want to send those to me, um, I would be happy to come back under staff updates at the next meeting and answer the questions and provide the, the responses to those questions uh, if that works. So it is certainly your uh, option to do that. What I'd like to do with the presentation tonight is review our current compensation scale and then review when and how compensation adjustments are made under our current compensation policy. And then the final thing I'd like to do is actually spend a few minutes uh, with all of you to understand where our current employee wages sit on that compensation scale to give you a, a broad brush of, of where our compensation program is in total. So the objectives of the compensation program as listed in the policy are as follows. The first is to attract and retain highly qualified, enthusiastic, productive, and committed employees, to maintain and motivate and reward employees to help the city achieve its short and long-term goals, to communicate expectations regarding different rates of pay, to maintain appropriate controls for all payroll costs, to recognize internal worth of jobs and pay accordingly, to meet competitive pay levels within the chosen market and within our available resources, to ensure consistent administration and application of pay policies, and finally, to ensure that our pay plan is administered uh, not based upon or influenced by any uh, protected characteristic of an employee, sex, race, color, age, religion, or any other legally protected class. So the first thing I wanna do is review our compensation scale to make sure that you have a full understanding of how this program works. So our compensation scale, uh, again, this copy has been provided to you. It's a three-page document. There are 81 jobs listed in it, and those 81 jobs fall into 19 different and distinct pay grades. Each pay grade has 15 steps in it, and if you look between steps one and step 15, there's a 27.5% spread between the range. It starts at 90% of the midpoint and goes to 117.5%. In between each pay grade, uh, there's also variations of 5 to 10%. So if you look at the vertical arrow, if you look at the very top of the scale, the difference between pay grade 120 and 121, if you look at the midpoint, the area in gray, there's a 7.5% difference between those 
those points between 121 and 122 it's six and a half and if you went through the whole scale you'd find that most of those differences are about a five percent adjustment between each step or between each uh, pay scale and then there are several that actually have a 10 percent uh, spread between them the next thing that's important for you to know in this program, um, as is the case with all compensation programs, is we have a, a minimum, a midpoint, and a maximum. So the minimum step is the minimum amount that we would pay for anyone who is put into that position. The midpoint, or step five, is the gray area again. This is important because this is the market rate. So the way I like to explain this to new employees when they're coming in is this is the average rate of the position. Regardless of whether you've been in the role for six months or 20 years, this is where your average would be. And so that is really where our target market is to ensure that we're being competitive with the external market. The maximum is step 15. And as I said, this is 117.5% above what the midpoint is. And this is really there for us to be able to reward those employees that are with us long-term in their current positions. Next, I wanted to talk about the three areas within our pay grade. So if you look at our scale, again, it's 15 steps. Between steps one and step five, there's a 2.5% adjustment between each pay step. Between steps six and 10, there's a 2% increase between each pay step. And between steps 11 and 15, there's a 1.5, whoops, sorry, it's 111. It's, it's, uh, it is actually, um, there's a 1.5% adjustment between uh, each step. And so when you're looking at that um, adjustment, we have these three areas for a couple of different reasons. One is in that first half or the first third of the scale, what we wanna do is get our employees to midpoint or to that market rate as soon as possible. So that's why we have a greater increase there at the two and a half percent adjustment between each step. Once we get to step five, we know they're competitive. So steps six through 10 still provide an incentive to keep uh, our employees engaged and retained. So there's an automatic 2% adjustment between those steps. And then to reward those employees that have been with us long-term in their particular position, there's the one and a half adjustment. So when you're looking at the compensation scale in general, and you're looking uh, at the scale for budgeting purposes or how uh, these are going to affect our overall um, compensation program, there's really three options that you have. The first one is a step adjustment, and this is what we've done the last two years um, for 20, and then for 2021 20, uh, is what we have planned. So what that means is that the scale remains as is, but every person in that scale moves up one step if they've had a successful performance review. And for our scale, those change uh, every July 1st. Again, that step adjustment is there to recognize the tenure and experience of people that are with the city in their current positions. The next option is a scale adjustment. And what that would be is to take the, the entire scale as it is today and shift it. So we would apply a percentage increase to the midpoint and then use that percentage breakdown to ensure that every step is accounted for and we maintain the integrity of the scale. So the scale adjustment is to recognize the cost of living and to help to ensure that our scale is remaining competitive with the external market. And then the third option is a combination. So this is really how our program was set up to operate initially. And granted, I understand that there are budget uh, impacts and that uh, address that is why we can't always do everything. Um, however, what the combination is, is all employees that have a successful performance review would advance one step and there would be a limited overall adjustment to the scale. So if we had determined as we're looking at budget that we wanted to do a scale increase in 2022 as a based on um, 
CPI or the consumer price index. And let's just say that that consumer price index was a 3% adjustment. We already know that we've got a two and a half at the lower percent increase in the lower end of our scale and a one and a half adjustment at the, at the upper end. So you can look at that and kind of determine where that would fall. And let's just say, uh, for an example, our average increase would be a 2.25%. The council could then choose to adjust the scale another 0.75% to make sure that we're staying market competitive. That would allow us to continue to incent the employees that we want to attract to our position, as well as give a cost of living increase and a um, recognition adjustment really for the employees that are in the scale. So in our current policy, we have five ways in which uh, the compensation of an employee can change outside of that annual increase that occurs in July. The first one is if you're newly hired into the position. Uh, new hires come in at step one if they have the minimum skills and ability for a role. And then uh, the council has granted HR uh, discretion to determine where we want to place someone between steps one and five, depending on the skill and experience of the person that we're looking to recruit. We can hire beyond step five with the approval of the city administrator. However, as you'll see later in the presentation, that doesn't happen, um, that hasn't happened since I've been here, and it doesn't happen very often that we go even uh, up to, to step five. Another option is promotion. Uh, when we do a promotion, our policy reads that if you um, are promoted, you move to step one of the new pay scale, or you move to the step that's closest to a 5% adjustment. There are going to be cases where a 5% adjustment isn't going to be sufficient, and so we have the ability to go up to 10%. Um, or if there's a compression issue, we may have to limit that and maybe not go the full 5%. And again, we'll talk about um, both equity and compression in a minute. A third option is demotions. Now, these don't happen very often, but they do. And the circumstances around a demotion will dictate what happens to the pay. Um, if it is a demotion, uh, what has happened when we've had someone who is in a pay grade and that pay grade is maybe, or the, the position is actually decreased in pay grade through a market study, an employee can be red circled. And what that means is that we would keep them at their current rate of pay or at the top of the scale, and we would basically hold them there without an adjustment until the market information catches up to the pay scale or to the current rate of pay. If we have an employee who is voluntary, uh, voluntarily applied for and accepted a position in a lower pay grade, we can reduce the salary, but we can keep their salary kind of as close to where they fit in their current uh, rate and then um, just manipulate it um, that way, keep them um, closest to the step where they currently were. And then if a demotion is performance-based, the decrease would be based within the pay grade and we would determine um, the appropriate rate of pay based on both equity or compression issues that exist. If someone is in an acting role or an acting uh, leadership is where we see this most often, in an acting role, there would be a temporary assignment to step one of the new pay grade or a step that is closest to a 5% increase, so it follows those promotional guidelines. And then the last one is uh, something that you're all familiar with in regard to market reviews or compensation evaluations that are requested. <laughs> So if we have a job that comes forward and it is requested to be reviewed because there's been a change in scope or a change in uh, requirements, experience, or skill set, um, we have an ability to bring that forward <coughs> to the Finance Budget and Personnel Committee to request a review by McGrath Human Resources Consulting. Um, if that uh, recommendation comes back as a change to the pay grade, we would place the employee at the minimum of the new pay grade. Um, or if their salary is already within the pay grade, we would look at the 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 equity or compression issues that may exist and, and set a rate of pay based on those items. 
I mentioned equity and compression a few different times. So I just want to clarify to this body what that means. So whenever we have someone new that comes into a position, we look at an equity analysis. And what that is, is it is a comparison of rates for similar position and similar types of work. Now, keep in mind, we talked about the fact that we've got 81 different jobs in this pay scale. So depending on the situation of that particular position, that equity analysis might vary. For example, if we had someone in the street division who was going to um, come into the position, we would look at rates of others in comparable positions in the same or a like position within that department, at least in the same pay grade. Um, if we had a scenario where we had a single incumbent position, we might look at others that fall within that same pay band, or we might look to see where they fall in comparison to others within their department or within the organization and determine uh, where that equity would fall. In regard to compression, um, this uh, really is the case when we have a number of individuals who have varying uh, responsibilities and their pay is really compressed uh, too closely together. There's not a significant difference between uh, their wages. And I just wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, this council uh, graciously let us in the last couple of years do two mid-year step adjustments, if you remember those. We had some compression issues because the way the old scale had worked is we used to move people to the midpoint of the scale and then we, they would be capped there and they would get a scale adjustment or a percentage increase. And so what that did is the longer, the, the more tenured employees in their roles, they may have been here, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, but they weren't progressing within the scale. And so we did those, those two mid-year adjustments that affected anyone who had been in their job for 10 years or more, that they got an additional step in January outside of the normal increases that took place in July. So that was really helpful. And as we get through the final part of this presentation, you'll see kind of the progress that was made uh, with those adjustments. So that is one example. A second uh, example of, com of compression that we always have to keep in mind has to do uh, typically with union negotiations. Um, we've got um, in this list, all of the employees that we're looking at, the pay grades that we're looking at are non-represented and and management positions. This does not include our police, it does not include our fire. So their wages are dictated by their contract. And when we're looking at that and we're looking at compression, we have to ensure that as those positions advance within the fire and police departments, that they're not encroaching on the salaries of the, um, of the deputy chiefs, the lieutenants, uh, assistant chief and chiefs, so that we don't have our staff in a scenario where they're automatically making more than what our um, leaders would be for more responsibility. So uh, in the last few minutes here, what I'd like to do is just kind of give you an overview of where our current employees sit uh, in the pay scale. So there are some graphs here that um, hopefully you can, you can read. If not, again, they are in your packets. So in this uh, pay band, we have 112 employees and non-represented in leadership roles. If you look at the scale in general, you'll see it's very heavy to the left. And what those are on the bottom of the uh, bar chart on the left is the fact those are our steps in the scale, steps one through 15. You can see in steps one through five, that's where the heaviest amount of our employees are. Steps six through 10, kind of that, that middle section. You know, we still have a number. It's, it's actually 80 employees in steps one through five, 30 employees in steps uh, six through 10. And then we have two employees who are at uh, step 15, one leader and one staff member actually. Uh, so that accounts for um, two people that are red circled in our current scale. If you look to the uh, pie chart on the right, you can just kind of see where those percentages break down in terms of where our current employees are in each of those step groups. I also wanted to spend a, a moment to look at the tenure of employees in their 
in their current jobs. And so keep in mind, this is not their hire date to today. This is the date the employee has been in their current position with the city. So uh, in terms of both recruitment and promotions, we've got 67 employees who are in the zero to five year category, 21 employees who are in the six to 10 year category, and 24 employees who are in the 11 plus category. This chart basically gives a, a comparison of the slides that we've just talked about. So if we wanted to look at the number of employees that we had compared to the number of people that are in that lower third of the pay scale, we've got um, 67 employees who've been in their position zero to five years and 80 employees who sit in the pay scale in pay grades one to five. Uh, the middle, uh, we've got 21 employees who have been in their positions six to 10 years and 30, 30 individuals who have been um, in the step groups between six and step 10. And then lastly, we have 24 individuals who have been with the city for uh, 11 years or more and two of them that sit at the top of the pay scale. And then lastly, I just wanted to be able to talk you through kind of a comparison of staff versus managers so that you have a good um, look. I think it's easy to assume that people that have been here a long time are the ones that have moved into uh, leadership positions. So what this does is just gives you, <clears throat> excuse me, a summary of uh, how many uh, managers versus staff are in the pay scale and which steps they're on. So again, just a visual to help you understand where uh, we sit in the scale today. And again, keep in mind, it looks like a very high ratio of, of leaders to staff. Keep in mind, this is not counting all of our firefighters and our, our police officers, which are a big group of our, uh, of our total FTEs. So with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Mr. Wagner, here's your buttons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, a few years ago, uh, we had to, we had a, a discussion, and, and I don't know, looking at the, the pay scales and, and the way things are right now, <clears throat> we had a, a discussion as to when we hired somebody who was qualified for a job or qualified to do the job, uh, putting them in in step one was sort of an insult. As a matter of fact, step one, according to what we've got here, step one is a full 10% off of market. So, you know, we, we try, we strive very hard to make sure that step five is at market, but then we turn around and hire somebody at 10% below market. Would it be of any benefit to us in our recruiting to shorten the number of steps of, well, you know, have, in other words, maybe start them out as a fully qualified person, start them out at what would be step two and a half or maybe three. Maybe, maybe not as much of a dent in it so that they don't have to wait four years to make market, even if we hire them as, as most qualified. Have you addressed that? Well, in terms of addressing it, the, the piece that we always have to keep in mind is the equity. So we've got a number of employees who are already within the city who are kind of crammed down at that bottom and end of the scale yet. So bringing somebody new in, there may be reasons why we would over, why we would leapfrog. We try not to do that. If it's someone who has been, you know, tenured in their role and they have equivalent levels of experience uh, as somebody who's coming in from the outside. So that certainly is something that we want to keep in mind. However, as time progresses, the scale is going to become more um, diverse, which is exactly what we want it to do. We're still, you know, just two years into this new scale right now. The next uh, scale adjustments uh, won't take place now until uh, July. 
And so as we continue to go through that, you know, we did recently have an adjustment with our street division where we realized that the market was low for those particular positions and we provided a step adjustment. That gives us the ability for that position that we were having a difficult time recruiting in to come in and bring people in, not necessarily at that step one. So that is helpful and that's how I think we would continue to monitor these. But again, what I have to be cautious of is making sure that we don't have uh, that, that we maintain equity in the scale to make sure that we're not uh, leapfrogging others who have equivalent skills and experience and are already with the city. I'll, I'll let it pass. I'll, I'll bring it up with you personally. Thank you very much. Mr. Fisher. Thank you, Council President. I have several questions. Um, so, um, you mentioned that this has been two years since we've implemented this. Uh, I wasn't here two years ago. So um, can you give me some background as to the change? I know the city was with Carlson Devon. What was, uh, what initiated that change? And how is this structure differ from the past structure would be my first question. Sure, so the compensation study that we had been under in the past had been uh, completed in 2012 uh, following Act 10 um, by Carlson Detman. And so that pay scale had, had come into play for a, a significant period of time. The, the program <clears throat> itself, excuse me, um, had four steps. I'm sorry, had a, a, a midpoint at step four. So that midpoint at step four would allow people to continue to advance when they came in to get to step four. Um, what we had to build um, and weren't able to, and, and granted there's cost uh, reasons for that, what they didn't do is what has always been referred to as a fourth pillar, which meant it was either a pay for performance or a stepped increase that would allow people to advance beyond step four. Um, instead, what happened is every year there was a, you know, one and a half or two and a half percent adjustment that was applied to anyone. And then those people that were below step four would have that adjustment as well. So that scale had been in place from 2012 until 2017. These types of scales should be reviewed every five years to see where we are from a market perspective. And so that was done. We did an RFP. We went to uh, multiple companies and we decided to go with McGrath uh, for the, for the uh, market study. And through that market study, we had a new uh, compensation scale built based on the number of jobs that we had. And there were a number of items that we changed. We had aligned some, some job descriptions, we had aligned some positions. We, in our street department in particular, we went from four classifications to two. Um, so there are a number of, of changes that took place with that. So the, the program was not a bad program that we had. It was, again, nine steps with midpoint at four. It was 90% uh, to 112% in terms of the, the span. Um, but other than that, you know, when we got to the market uh, study in 2017 that was implemented in 2018, what we did is kind of a broad-based look. They had looked at 19 different communities that were considered comparables and then based our wages that are in this current scale on those comparables. And you actually said something that I want to follow up with because this was one of my other questions. Um, when you looked at those other 19 communities, uh, can you just give me an idea? What were those communities? I mean, are we talking communities regionally? Are we talking communities all across the state? They're within the state. Um, what they did is they looked at um, population. They looked at, you know, kind of where it was situated. I don't remember the specific communities, all 19 off the top of my head. I do remember things like Wisconsin Rapids, Stevens Point, um, various counties, um, I think Superior was one, but I could get that list too. Yeah, and, and the reason I bring that up is I just, 
you know, I question sometimes how often we hire people from other communities that are not um, close to Marshall. And so, I mean, obviously it does happen. I can think of the library director, for example, but I don't know if I see it a, as a common practice that we're, we're really seeing someone relocate um, from a community, let's say in the Fox Valley, or you talk about Superior. And so I've always struggled when companies like McGrath or Carlson Detman uh, start to compare because really if you're looking for a job and you are in the government sector and you're living in central Wisconsin, I'm going to believe that you're probably looking for work within central Wisconsin. And so, um, but what I'm hearing you say is those communities nearest to us were part of that. Correct. Okay. I want to make sure that was, that's important to me. Uh, also, um, I tend to agree um, with Alderman Wagner um, about the idea of finding a way to get people to market sooner. Um, because when I was looking at this, I mean, when you start at step one, to me, that is a very drastic difference from where the market rate is. And so I do think that's something we need to be looking at is how do we get people to market maybe in a more timely manner so they're not waiting what, five full years before they can get there. Um, my other concern is um, once someone gets to uh, grade 15, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm understanding this, there is still that annual adjustment, but that's all they're getting at that point. Is that correct? Correct. There's an annual adjustment um, that they would get. The, the downside is, is that the last couple of years, we haven't been able to do that. So we've got some employees that have been limited. The can other... Give me a rough... I'm sorry. Can you give me a rough idea? How many employees would that two. have been? Two employees were not able to have any adjustment. Correct. Do they get the cost of living still? They do not. They do not. You know, one option would be, you know, looking ahead in what some organizations do. When you get to somebody that gets to the midpoint... They stay at their normal rate of pay, but then they get a lump sum bonus that would be the equivalent of what that adjustment would be. So that is something that that you could consider, um, you know, as a step or something along those lines. But again, we want to make sure that that scale is moving too, so that we can continue to attract new people to the. So now you you said we have had two years where we haven't made that mm -hmm. mid-year adjustment. Yeah, well, it's it's 2020, and 2020. then we're we're slotted for 2021 without an adjustment today. So by by that happening, how far back does that set us in the plan? Um, you know, I, it's going to be a, a market review that will ultimately tell us where we're at. You know, ultimately what we're doing is we're keeping our current staff with increases anywhere between one and a half and two and a half percent. So there is recognition for staff that are currently here. Um, the policy, the way it works, too, is if we have a new hire who comes in and let's just say that they started in, in uh, January, January 29th. So they started January 29th. Typically, they would not be eligible for a step increase unless they had started before the first of the year. So they are they are eligible for a step adjustment after six months in the position. So then on July 29th, they would have otherwise been eligible for the scale shift. But if there is no scale shift, then they're going sometimes a year and a half uh, at most without an adjustment. So that's the other kind of downfall um, if that doesn't occur. Okay. Uh, if I may, I have one more question. Um, and that is, I mean, one of my biggest concerns, or I guess my two biggest concerns is equity 
which you've mentioned, I, I want to make sure the system is fair to all our employees. Um, and two, I always am concerned about compression because I know from being at the county that I'm just going to pick on the sheriff's department. I know that sometimes you can have someone in management and get deputies on the road getting overtime. You can really start to have that overtime get close to the management salaries. Are we experiencing that at either the police department or fire department where we're seeing a compression issue where with overtime, it's harder to really find people to go into management roles because, well, why would I leave the pay that I'm getting? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, and, we, and we have seen that. You know, we had done, back in 2018, we had done a market uh, review with the police department, which brought some wages that were falling behind from a staff level position up. And so that does cause compression with the uh, lieutenants that are there. And then we're currently... Uh, Evaluating that for the fire department, there have been some concerns that have been surfaced in regard to uh, compression between some of the higher level positions um, within the fire department. Uh, you got to keep in mind that when we're dealing with the contracts, so there is the base pay and, and how that applies. There's the overtime component, and then there's also the additional pays, whether it's first ambulance, second ambulance, MPO. Um, Scott could probably give the full list, but um, so those ultimately pay come into play when you're talking about an overall compensation salary. Okay. How often do we look at the management roles in those two departments and just the wages? You know, we evaluate them, you know, at one as needed, but it's also something that we would look at on a regular basis. I think we need to continue to monitor that every time we go through negotiations to make sure that we're not encroaching too much on those positions. Okay. Um, thank you. Mr. Witzel. Thank you. I've been madly writing all sorts of questions down as well. Um, first one I have, just for clarification, um, could you explain on, on um, pay grade 135 why there's two numbers? I'm sorry, what did you say? Pay grade 135. Okay. Why are there two numbers? Oh, there's two numbers on pay grade 135 because we have, uh, I don't have the scale in front of me, but ultimately it has to do with deputy chiefs or... Um, in the fire department or the police lieutenants. And so some of those are paid on a salaried basis and some of them are paid on an hourly basis. So we had both um, both a monthly amount and a hourly amount listed. So that second number then, not in the blue line, but in the white or gray spaces, that second number would be the monthly? I believe monthly. Okay, okay, thank you. It was just weird because that was the only one that I saw that had the two numbers and I was confused by that. Um, a whole bunch of things come to mind as we've been discussing and you've been providing uh, information. Um, the market value as this was this compensation plan was put together and every time uh, we, and I'm, I'm assuming whenever we as finance budget personnel send something to McGrath to review, they don't review for market value, they review for positioning on our scale. But when this, this um, plan was brought to us a number of years ago, the market value was based strictly on other municipalities, correct? Not on any private sector? Well, they did request information from private sector um, specifically. However, they're not required to give it to us. So what, what they've done, and as we followed up with McGrath through that, is they also use other sources like uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and different things to verify. You can get that information on a regional basis, 
um, or a state basis. And so that is an external comparison as an example of what they use to look at both uh, municipalities and non-municipalities. Okay, because there's a lot of websites also like indeed.com that also provide market scale based on where you live. And I just was wondering if they had used any of that type of information. You know, I don't know that they use Indeed. That's a self-reported type of um, tool. So although valuable in terms of getting ideas, I don't know that you'd use it as a checklist. Maybe a better opportunity would be to um, contract with uh, like Mercer or Towers Watson um, in order to get an actual salary survey if you're looking for those kind of non-municipal based types of positions for comparisons. Okay, thank you. Um, you mentioned that periodically um, we do the couple of adjustments, um, and I wanna make sure I have my terminology correct here, the step adjustment and the scale adjustment. Uh, the step ad adjustment you said is based on a satisfactory performance. I was curious what, what that meant. So every year we have performance reviews that are due um, this year they're due July or June 15th in anticipation of the July increase. If someone has not had a successful performance review, so a rating of three or above or a satisfactory rating, then they would not be eligible for a pay increase for that year or until their um, performance has improved to support the adjustment. Three or above on what kind of a scale? Five points. Okay, scale. thank you. And what happens if they don't have that satisfactory performance? Then they would uh, maintain their current wage until it got to the next pay cycle. Is anything else done as well? Uh, it can be performance improvement plans. It could be corrective action. It would depend on the circumstances. Okay, thank you. Um, next uh, question that I had. Um, you had mentioned um, this, and again, I want to make sure I have the terminology correct. Uh, I think the term was red circle, mm -hmm. and that had to do with a market value that dropped. It could be. So have you know, never can... seen that happen. We have. Really? Yeah, we've seen that. So the two individuals that we have that are red circled right now, uh, one position was determined to be um, paid above the top of the scale when the scale went in. So they were red circled at their wage at that time. The other one came in, I believe, one step below the maximum of the wage. And so they increased the following year, the one step, and then were frozen at the top of the scale. Okay, but that was just because they're at the top of the scale. That's not because the market value went down. Well, and ultimately, that's why they were at the top of the scale, because the market for that position went down. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, the other thing, and you, you of course, mentioned this, and um, we've, we've had to make some difficult decisions, uh, decisions I don't know that any of us necessarily really wanted to make the last couple of years. But uh, you were talking about the scale adjustments, um, and the fact that they really haven't happened the last couple of years. When you propose a scale adjustment normally, what do you use as a factor to decide the amount of the scale adjustment? Um, well, it varies. You know, CPI is something that is typically considered as part of that um, review. Sometimes we're looking at kind of where we're sitting as a city in terms of what our expenses are and where we're sitting in regard to um, debt or, or different scenarios. So it's a discussion um, that we talk about uh, initially with the city administrator and myself, and then that falls into the budget discussions. Okay. So then just to, to piggyback off of that, and this will be my last thing that I bother you with, at least for the time being. Uh, 2020, we had a difficult situation. Um, we were in the midst of COVID. We knew that a lot of people within the community were either furloughed, laid off, or in, in many instances, completely lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, as a city, we were fortunate that we did not have to deal with that because we had plenty of work to work on and we were able to adjust schedules and calendars and provide uh, the ability for people to continue to work without furloughing. Um, but I think that that was one of those things that 
kind of came to mind as we were struggling through some of the decisions that we had to make. Based on that and based on the, um, the dire budget situation that we were facing last fall, and again, the, the decision not to do that scale adjustment this year, could you estimate how far behind the CIP we've fallen in those two years and what it would take if we wanted to, let's say, make everything right if we had, you know, provided those increases? Do you have any idea what that would be looking like? I don't have that information now, but we could certainly find that out. Okay, because I guess I get, I'd be curious, uh, you know, I, I think one of the most valuable assets in the city are the employees. And uh, they do incredible work. And I guess I'd like to know, um, you know, I think everybody within the community has suffered to some degree, but you know, I hate to see things continue to be on the backs of the employees here. And I kind of like just know what, I mean, I know that what you had proposed, but I didn't know how that lined up with the CIP. And I guess I'd like to know that at some point. Yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, it, it's not going to be a, a, a perfect match when we're looking at that, but we could certainly get some some information together and then provide that at one of the next meetings. Thank you. And I guess, you know, I don't know how everybody else feels. I know there are some people here in public or public works that probably don't really get into the finance thing so much, but you know, I don't know if it's good enough to the finance budget personnel or if this whole body would like to hear it here. <clears throat> I guess I'd leave that up to the rest. Thank you. Okay. Mr. Butkey. Yeah, I too wrote down uh, questions to ask. And uh, fortunately, many of these people have, uh, asked those questions already. Um, I talked to a number of employees. I have always done that. I never use their name, so they feel uh, confident talking to me. Uh, talking about the street department, for example, you know, we, we've had a problem with keeping people there. One person came up to me, and, and you had mentioned this, Jen, that you will pay higher for somebody that has maybe more experience in, in, in something. That's one thing that a lot of them don't like because years ago they all started from the bottom basically and worked their way up. So that's, I just have to say that. And, and I have to go along with what Mr. Wagner has said too. Um, I think we need to look at that. I think that would help this whole process there to, to reduce that number down to get them up to market quicker to keep them here. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, you know, you mentioned about the bonus, you know, sometimes. The only problem with, yes, that's something, but the only problem with the bonus, it doesn't compound like the wages. So they're still going to be farther behind, you know, and I don't think that's fair at all. There should be something eventually. Um, Another thing to look at, I know years ago they used to do the uh, wage increases by your start date rather than yearly. Now, I don't know, maybe that's a real pain to work with. I, you know, I'm not sure, but uh, is that something, you know, because some people don't come out as good, they have to wait, uh, you know, until July 1st or whatever. That might be something to consider. Um, but here's the thing, and other people have asked this, is uh, how many years behind were we? Now, there was some special circumstances maybe here, but I've preached this since I've got on the council. We have to keep up. We have to keep up. That's one thing we as a council has to do. It does not get easier by holding it back for a couple of years. 
the money is still going to be spent there, you know, and, and meanwhile, the, the, these people are doing good jobs and they deserve to get that. Um, and it wasn't just the COVID. Over the years, I've heard that as well. Well, we can't afford it this year. You can't afford not to, you know, and, and that's what I hope that this council takes out of this, that other than this special circumstance that we had with the debt and stuff, we have to get this and do it annually. These people, number one, deserve it, and it's the right thing to do. Mrs. Spiros. Thank you, Council President. I just wanted to piggyback a little bit off, off of what uh, the direction Mr. Bucky was taking it with the street department. Um, uh, I don't think this whole council knows. There's a couple of us that have been um, working with you, Jen, and, and working with Dan um, uh, regarding some concerns with the street department. Um, so I kind of wanted you to maybe um, go through that and, and, and just to kind of reassure people that, that we are working on that. Um, and one thing sticks out in my head that was said, and, and I don't know how we deal with this, but I do want to talk about this for one minute. Um, I did have a young man in those meetings. He's a concrete worker. Um, and, you know, he said, once you're in concrete, you're stuck in concrete. And you don't, you know, you don't get to go anywhere. You don't get to advance. And um, he was, he, he felt very strongly, um, you know, that the compensation wasn't um, fair for the amount of hard labor um, that they were putting in. And um, uh, I, I kind of just want to address that because that, that bothered me a lot to hear somebody say, we're here and we're stuck. We're just stuck and there's nowhere to go. Um, and I don't mean for you to address this tonight necessarily, but I do think that we need to look at that and especially in that area because um, I, they do work really, 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 really hard. I mean, that's the truth. I think physically they probably have the most physically demanding job of anybody who works for the city, if I'm not mistaken, or that's how I would consider it. Um, so uh, if you could just kind of update the council on where we're at with that and um and then maybe we can address um that particular area at, at another point in time but i do really want to have that looked at we'd be happy to do that any other comments well there's no action to take on this tonight thank you john thank you and we'll move on to item number l uh, presentation on a Marshfield City subdivision proposal presented by Josh Miller. Josh. Thank you. I don't have a fancy bar charts or anything like that, so I've, I've got a really tough act to follow with uh, some, some good stuff, but I hope a high graph even. I don't even know. I didn't have time. <clears throat> All right. Well, I, I appreciate Ashley's comments earlier. She's been kind of a bulldog at our EDB meetings, uh, along with some other uh, Rita Blanker and, and Jenny Shaner, just realtors that are, know the situation and um, have, have come to our meetings and, and expressed the concerns. And, and we've known about this for a couple of years, and I've actually brought this up back in 2018 to the council about the lack of lots. Um, we've tried some things, and um, some things have worked to some degrees, but other things have not. And so um, we're, we're looking at another approach here, and, and hopefully this, this, we can make this work. So <clears throat> just a little background. 
The last single family residential subdivision was created in 2008. Um, and we know what happened in 2008, the market tanked, uh, housing market, the, the bubble happened and um, really left us kind of in, in a shortfall for a couple of years. It didn't really recover um, probably till 2011, 2012. And we're still at a backlog since that time. So we haven't really created an additional lots. We've been utilizing the lots at a pretty good clip. Um, in the last five years, we've developed 17 residential lots a year. Um, and so um, <clears throat> we're, we're running out of lots essentially. Um, and unless we do a subdivision, periodically there have been CSMs or certified survey maps that create one or two here and there, but ultimately we're running out of lots. Um, as Ashley mentioned, there's fewer than 20 homes available for sale without an offer. Um, there's about 5,200 single family dwelling units in the community. So that doesn't give you a lot of mobility, doesn't give you a lot of options. Um, you know, you, you, yes, it's a, it's a seller's market. So if you wanted to sell your home, um, but wanted to stay in the community, Good luck. I mean, there's really nothing else to choose from. <clears throat> and the, the developers are, aren't really able to do that, even though you'd think, well, with the market pressure that there is, uh, why doesn't the developer put in a subdivision? Um, one, there's a lot of risk. Uh, the, the market could change. We don't, I don't think it will, but uh, it could change. Um, two, they, they can't really get the financing that's available to the city. They don't have the ability to, banks won't lend them money to do a, a million dollar infrastructure project because of the risk. <clears throat> so um, there, there's a lot of challenges and we don't have a lot of big name developers. We have smaller developers. They have a few employees. They can do a couple houses a year, um, but not, not somebody that can fill out a large subdivision. So it's, it'd be tough for any one individual developer to do it alone. Um, there's a significant demand for housing. We continue to see it, see it grow. Uh, the average price of homes continue to increase. It went from 157 in 2020 or in 2019 to 166,000 in 2020. So that was a pretty significant increase in the last year. I just read an article, <clears throat> and, uh, Mr. Penker provided to me that uh, Marathon County has exceeded 100, their, their average median price is about 185,000. Um, and, and the state is actually over 200,000. So um, it's, it's just interesting numbers. Um, seeing homes that are selling at a record pace, um, basically I've, I've, my friends a couple weekends ago just sold a home in 24 hours. and. Um, a lot of times the homes are, are being sold at well over asking price. So these are things that you used to hear about in California and you know in other markets, but it's coming to Marshfield. We're, we're, we're really seeing a lot of uh, um, people paying over asking and, and more demand. Um, despite the significant costs, we're seeing more and more demand. So I know lumber prices have shot up significantly. Other costs have gone up, uh, but we continue to see demand. And, and we're in a different situation than we were in 2008. 2008, everybody was over leveraged. They didn't have any equity in their homes. Uh, now a lot of people have equity in their homes. And uh, so it's a different scenario. Population numbers continue to increase. I reported this at the 2020 Economic Development um, uh, Report. And we, we continue to see about 150 people on average coming in the last few years to Marshfield. So, um, and I've heard stories from the school district and other employers that they're seeing people come back to Marshfield. Um, the pandemic had an impact on people wanting to be in a community this size. There was a lot of uh, issues, civil unrest and, and things like that in 2020. And Marshfield is, is a safe community. It's a wonderful community to raise a family and people are drawn to that. And because of COVID, they were able to do a lot of teleworking. And so people can still work in a community this size and work for another employer outside the community. So I continue to see Marshfield as a, as a good place to, as a, um, as a big attraction to come to Marshfield. 
interest rates are historically low. Um, obviously, that can change. We, you know, um, we, we hear the Fed talk about that, but uh, hopefully they continue to stay low for, for this purpose. Expecting the housing market to stay strong for another couple of years. Um, but people are building elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> we've, we've talked to develop, developers that they've built uh, for clients um, outside of Marshfield that wanted to move to Marshfield, but there wasn't places to do that. So um, we've lost out on, as Ashley mentioned, we've lost out on potential candidates uh, and families uh, due to lack of housing. Um, and as I mentioned, we've tried some programs. The housing incentive program back in 2002 was the last year of that program. That seemed to be the, <clears throat> the most successful program that we've had. Um, and we, we haven't been able to duplicate it. So what, what we're proposing is looking at a, a 10 acre piece of land. Um, if, we if we act quick enough this year, uh, we could have lots open up by the end of this year before, before winter. So people could put in basements yet this year. Um, and there really isn't a non-construction season anymore. People can build homes, but if they can get the, the laterals in and they can get the foundations in, uh, that's an easy winter project nowadays. Um, we're focusing on areas that have probably higher home values than, than um, I think has been discussed. We've, before we were talking about workforce housing and affordable housing, that's really difficult to do outside of some type of tax credit system or some type of um, TIF district or, or thing like that. And those take time. Those take a long time to set up. Um, so we really would like to focus on kind of the higher end because we still need that. Um, and that will provide a, a quicker return on investment. We'll be able to develop that faster. Um, the cost estimate, and it's listed in your packet, um, it's about a $1.5 million price tag. And, and that's just based on the estimate. Uh, obviously with inflation, things could change. Those are the numbers that we had to work with from a, a previous project. Um, and that's kind of an, hopefully an all in number, but we, that, that could change just to kind of give you a heads up on that. Um, one of the things that we have that, that most communities don't is we have an economic development fund. Uh, we're very blessed to have that uh, at our disposal. And so looking at what, what really could carve out of there for, you know, for the short term would be the economic development board could fund about 900,000 of that 1.5 million. Uh, that would leave about 622,000 left for the council. Um, you know, that's a big number. I understand that. Um, and so, um, how, how would we get paid back on that? Um, EDB, because they're putting in 900,000, they could get recoup that money uh, when, when they sell the lots. So if we sell the lots in the subdivision and get that money back, uh, that could go to the EDB. If the council's concerned about the $622,000 number, um, they could split the proceeds of that lot. So some of that could come to the council, some could come to the EDB. Eventually the EDB would probably like to be made whole by the council, but uh, we could, we could kind of negotiate that. But I think, Ideally, that number could get replenished as taxes come in uh, from the new tax base. Uh, the council would recoup its, recoup its investment through new taxes as, as we develop this, this subdivision. Uh, we anticipate build out of, of it would probably be, bring about $9 million in new tax value. So that'd be a significant increase. Um, the other option or one of the options that staff is proposing is, is to uh, reach out to other groups that, that could be kind of partners in this. And that would be Wood County, could be um, Marshfield Utilities and Wastewater. So we could get some other funding probably uh, from those entities. Um, lastly, there, there's a stimulus that's come forward and there may be some opportunity to use that money for the water and the sanitary sewer. So the, as much as I don't, don't wanna say that the 1.5 million is a cap because we know bids could come in higher. Um, hopefully that is kind of the high end with, with conservative estimates. But even if not, um, I think the return would be there. Um, 
we would propose probably homes in the, with, with the lot would be an assessed value of about $400,000. Now that seems really high, um, but with the way things are going, um, that's, that's not that significant of a cost um, compared to what it costs to build a home these days. Um, it's just, it just isn't, unfortunately. I mean, you, when our previous housing study was done, we were looking at targeting 125000 to $175,000 homes, uh, or I think under $200,000 homes, and you, you just can't build homes for that price anymore, not single-family detached homes with a lot in the city. It's just, unless you're going to build, like, pocket homes or smaller, tiny homes, um, it's, it's just... Um, or, or very shoddy homes where you're not going to, where they're not going to last very long. You could maybe get under to under two hundred fifty thousand, but it'd be um, surprising to do that. Um, we look to, to in order to kind of mitigate some of the risk, we would look to pre-sell the lots, or at least pre-sell as much as we can. And staff would propose if we could reach that fifty percent threshold of sell, pre-selling at least half of the lots in the subdivision, uh, then we think that there, that would show enough interest in. Um, in this pro proposal to move things forward and, and mitigate some of that risk. And um, pre-selling is probably a little bit of a misnomer because it's more of a looking for a commitment that would, um, that, uh, somebody that would be interested in purchasing it would sign, they would put earnest money down or, or holding fee down and to be able to, to they're probably not gonna pay $40,000 for a lot that doesn't have any roads in it until we get the roads in. So um, they'd have some time to, to, to pay for the lot, but if we could get that kind of a letter with some kind of money down, I feel like that would be enough interest to, to move forward with that project. Uh, so really the next steps, um, we have an EDB meeting on Thursday. So we're trying to finalize the numbers with them. They have reviewed this project, um, but they haven't seen the exact the breakdown of the numbers. Um, and then try to get, make sure that they're comfortable with the $900,000 number and work through some of the details that we'd wanna see. Um, we'd like to, if, if we do have a, a pre-sell, uh, we want to have some type of either development agreement or some kind of covenants that protects us that says a lot's going to be worth X amount of dollars uh, or have an assessed value of X amount. Um, there's this minimum uh, size building, you know, attached um, two-car garage, full basement, and so on. So there's some type of protection that these will be quality homes. Um, we're not going to go on the cheap there. Um, so the next steps would be... Uh, to get those pre-sell um, lots pre-sold, try to get uh, some interest. There has been some discussion. I feel pretty comfortable that um, the, the, the target price we're in is pretty good, and I feel pretty comfortable that there's enough interest in there um, for people to buy buy up some of these lots, uh, at least half of them. Um, the, the timeline would be we'd come back to council in two weeks and kind of get report on our progress. Hopefully we get that the interest of at least 50% of the lots. Um, and then um, Dan's team, the engineering team, would work on putting together the bid documents and getting that ready for bid and um, uh, the engineering documents. Um, and that would be going to the Board of Public Works, I think, in early June. And um, then it wouldn't, that would be put out to bid. And then we'd have, um, I think, open up the bids in early July and hopefully start construction end of July and uh, have lots ready to build um, mid-October. Mid so, yeah. So that would be, and then the other part of that is to go and approach these other organizations for some assistance with the funding. So I think that's a critical component. Um, ultimately, um, I'm just gonna fast forward here a little bit. Obviously there's there's some risks and, and I don't wanna sugarcoat anything saying, well, this is a, this is a slam dunk. And I, I think this is a pretty good solid proposal, but um, obviously interest rates could rise and the housing market could shift. And we know that there's always a possibility, but from things that we've talking to bankers and realtors, we feel pretty comfortable that the next uh, two to three years that this would be a strong housing market. 
I don't think we'll see uh, prices jump up, you know, like they have maybe, but it should stable off and hopefully um, continue to stay strong. Um, lots may not sell as, as uh, projected, um, but obviously if we do a, the pre-sale, uh, that does some gives us some protection uh, with that risk saying, yes, there's some interest. If they put money down, obviously there's a strong interest um, and that would help. Um, maybe they don't develop as projected, but if we have a development agreement that ensures that they're going to be paying some minimum assessed value or taxes in lieu of, that gives us some protection as well. Um, this proposal doesn't address the, the affordable housing or the workforce needs. Um, and we are working with um, staff and, and others on another proposal for a mixed-use TIF district that would allow us to uh, open up some workforce housing. Not work workforce is maybe not the right term, but maybe some starter homes in that in that uh, lower price range. So we would try to address that. Um, and then in 2024, if we we're able to close our TIF district uh, TID five on time, we will have a kind of a windfall of money for another year of increment to help with affordable housing. So we do have some other tools at our disposal. Um, but in order to get lots open this year, all of those other things take a little bit of time. So, um, so benefits, so we feel like once it's built out, we'll generate over $9 million in tax base. Uh, that's a pretty strong investment. If this was in a TIF district, the amount of investment would be, you know, in the neighborhood of 15 to 17%. Um, that's, that's pretty reasonable from what we've done on other investments. Now a TIF district, we're able to capture all the taxes. We can't do that here. But here we can sell the land for almost a market rate. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty big benefit. Uh, we pr provide jobs to local contractors, uh, provide housing for incoming workforce, as we've heard that that's an issue. I think there's a clear return on investment for the Economic Development Board. Yeah, they're putting a big, big $900,000 is a big number up front. But if we sell these lots uh, as we think we can, that money can be recouped pretty quickly. Um, maybe even recouped before we have to put, you know, pay for the, the, the infrastructure. Um, there's likely, you know, should be recouped, the funding should be recouped by the city in, in 10 years. And I talked to Alderman Wagner yesterday. It's probably never fully recouped because we have to do snow plowing. We have to maintain these, these roads and stuff. But for the most part, they would generate, if, if we do get that $9 million in tax base, they would generate $94,000 a year in new taxes for the city. That's just the city's portion. That doesn't include the counties and the school districts and the technical, uh, technical school. Um, but really, what, what is the cost of not doing it? Um, if we don't have these lots available for, um, for new people coming in or people wanting to move up in, in their, in their um, housing situation, um, the city's not growing. Um, I think, I don't know if it was Ashley or another realtor that told me that, you know, when someone came, they were doing a tour and they said, you know, where's the new subdivisions? Where, where, would, where would we be likely to build? And, and they said, there isn't any. That's a, that's a sad statement for a community that, that is, I think is growing, but it doesn't sound like we are. So to, to say we don't have any subdivision in the last 13 years, um, that's tough. Um, but we would lose out on workforce and, and potential uh, needed housing. So I think there is a, a, yes, this is an expensive project, but I think there is a good return. This is definitely a need. And um, um, so right now what we're looking for is really some direction from council. If you're supportive of us going forward with this, um, really the, the expenses that we'd, we'd incur right now would be the engineering expenses to finish up the engineering documents and put the bid together. Uh, we estimate that between five and $6,000. Um, so that, that'd be really the, the costs incurred and then working with the city attorney on probably the development agreement and any, any other kind of documents we need for uh, the land sale. But um, we, would, we would be moving forward on, and in a closed session we'll be talking about the land itself, but 
um, you know, hopefully we move forward on an offer to purchase with contingencies, um, and then we can keep this going forward. You would still have an opportunity, you know, uh, to review this at May 25th, and, and you could say, you know, hopefully not because we'd have staff time and some money into it, but um, you could say no at that time if we don't get the pre-sales or, or whatever. Um, if the bids come back too high, you know, we, we, but even if the bids come back high, we think that next year with inflation, with all the stimulus money coming in, these roads are not going to get cheaper to build. It's just the infrastructure is going to be higher and higher. Um, we're going to have more and more money out with, with fewer contractors to do it. So their prices are going to go up. Um, and so it's, it's going to be tougher to do uh, in the future. So um, with that, I would be happy to take any questions. Mr. Wagner, you're first up. Thank you, Mr. Ch uh, Chairman. The, um, uh, the, I did meet with Josh for about two hours yesterday, and uh, we, we covered a very broad range of, uh, of subjects on this thing. And I told him when I left there that I still wasn't sold on this thing because there were two numbers that bothered me a great deal. One is the $900,000 from the Economic Development Fund being thrown into this project, and the, and the rather loose uh, rather loose way that they would be reimbursed if ever reimbursed and that is you know you know the the city the city's going to have 600,000 which is the other number which is the other number that I'm having trouble with we're going to have to take out a bond issue for or a, a loan of $600,000 to make up for the what what the economic development board wasn't putting in there i understand the urgency with which both the realtors and you uh, think that this particular subdivision must be built I think you see that, but when you know when we did the economic development board and we started in what 2011, 2012, something like that, okay. uh, the first thing the first thing out of the barrel they did was a housing study. The first thing they did, and they found out that there were a lot of people who were working in Marshfield that didn't have a place to live, and these were wage scale earners. These were these were working. Um, they they weren't necessarily the. Uh, uh, the professionals that uh, that would be working necessarily at the clinic, and basically that housing study was taken by the private by private enterprise, and I think in the next three years, uh, four years actually, that's still going on. Uh, I mean, we've got over 400 units, 400 rental units that are filled now that that weren't going to be here when they they did that. My problem with this is that the city is assuming 100% of the risk, 100%, and basically. I think that if this thing is so good that the private sector ought to have some skin in the game too. And there's absolutely no, no private sector skin in this game. We're going we're gonna to open it up and we're going to take all the risk. And I, 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 just, I just have a tough time with this. You showed me your plans for, the, uh, for a, a TID, a mixed-use TID, that would have workforce housing. and Well, we called it workforce, but I guess it's, it's also, you say, starter homes or whatever. That has that has far more potential uh, than than I think this is. This is what? How many lots is it? Fourteen lots? It'll be over twenty. Over twenty. Over twenty lots. Okay, but but I mean, even the other plan is is much more viable. I I understand I understand the need, and I understand the near panic of saying, "Oh my God, we got all these people coming in, and we don't have a place to put them." Well. If, and if the private sector is going to do that, I want them to be in, in the game too. And I would like to see a financing scheme that includes that. And, and by the way, I think the, 
The last time I looked at the, uh, uh, the uh, 502 fund, was that it, the uh, Economic Development Fund, it was something like a million two in there, and they'd be basically, basically using all but 300,000 of that money. And basically that would not give us the opportunity to do anything for the second follow-on project that you were talking about with the TID. So, so I, I'm, I'm, I was really skeptical about this thing. Uh, I, I like the idea. It, it's a grand idea. Uh, Peachtree Circle was a success, but it took us 20 years for it to be a success. So I, so it, I, I, I love the fact that you, you're, you're enthusiastic about it and you're, you're confident about it. Uh, but I, I guess uh, I, I'm an old man and I've seen the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. So uh, that's, that's how I stand on this right now. Thank you. Mr. Butkey. As a former member of the EDB, I, I can tell you there, there is definitely momentum there. Uh, we've been pushing to get this going. Now, you know, I, I think Mr. Wagner's got some good concerns there, but this isn't done. You know, we got a long, you're going to come back with stuff yet. So let's not throw the project out before we hear the details. You know, maybe we can get the private sector involved. You know, we don't know those details yet. Uh, you know, it, but it's exciting that we're finally going to be doing, looking to do something for the housing. I mean, that is definitely there with the, we're losing so many people up to the other communities, you know, and this is, I mean, I think Ashley said that Stevens Point, Wausau, you know, all these other, they're going in, they're commuting. So we're losing out on that. We have to do something. I hear what you're saying, Mr. Wagner, and uh, I want to hear what Josh will come up with when he talks to the other entities. Mrs. Spiros. Um, Josh, I just have a couple of questions and um, pardon my ignorance, but I, ju I just need to have these answered. Um, in Florida, they use what they call CDDs, Community Development Districts. Um, that doesn't exist up here? Um, if it's similar to what we have for, a, we have what's called a planned unit development. Um, and so that would be, we've done those. Uh, some have not worked out very well. Um, I'm not familiar with that term, so I have to look Okay, at so that. in Florida, what my understanding is, is, is when you, when um, they want to build out a subdivision, um, they, they let people know when they buy a lot that they're going to be paying a CDD. Typically, the length of the CDD might be around 20 years, and it's added kind of onto their mortgage. The CDD, it's compromised of like five board members, and what they do is they provide all the infrastructure to the development. Um, and they provide like any amenities, say, you know, say a subdivision is going to have tennis courts or they're going to have a community pool or whatever. They provide that. And then, you know, as people purchase the lots and buy their homes and build their homes, they're paying that back um, over a 20 year period of time. Um, and I mean, I don't even know if you can get into a subdivision anymore in Florida without a CDD, at least not that I know of. So I didn't know if that was just a Florida thing or if that was something um, that they did in other places or why we wouldn't utilize something um, like that. Um, the second thing that you said was, um, you know, we don't have any um, uh, developers here who have very big teams. They can only put up a house or two a year because, you know, because of their, they're small. Um, how, how do other communities, and I'm not 
trying to take work away from locals, believe and trust. That's who I think should be doing it. But, but when you're looking at um, d developing 20 lots and, you, you know, you only have a couple of contractors who can put up one or two houses a year, how do you make that go quicker? How do you, how do you find those bigger developers that come in and, you know, for lack of a better term, maybe, you know, I mean, I've seen this also in Florida and I use Florida as my reference because obviously, you know, I own a home down there and I go there a lot. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, for some people, they would say those are type of cookie cutter homes or what have you. I mean, they maybe have five or six plants and that's all they build in there unless they bring them all to developers. Um, so what does this, I mean, do we just, do we just not have CDD in the state of Wisconsin? Is that just something they don't use here or? I'm not familiar with it. I could certainly look into it and, and come back to you with some information. I, that's not a term that I've, I've, I'm familiar with, but. And as far as the contractors go, I mean, we, we do have, we have great contractors in Marshfield, but the whole idea would be to kind of spread the wealth in something like this is to reach out and say, look, do you want to buy two lots? You know, I mean, this would be a prime subdivision for, for lots. And if you get 10, 10 contractors to buy two lots, I mean, and, and we have at least 10 contractors, they just, they're not going to do a whole subdivision on their own typically. And so that's, that's why, um, yeah, in other communities, I think they're, you know, in Toronto and Wetter, Weather, Wetter and other communities, they have some like Denyon and there's some other bigger, you know, developers that, that can take on some of that or do more infrastructure. They have uh, more resources to do stuff like that. A lot of ours are builders versus developers in town. Thank you. Mr. Fisher. Thank you, Council President. Um, I want to ask a couple questions and make a few comments. First and foremost, uh, one thing that Alderman Wagner said uh, that I agree with is I do think we need to, as a council and as a city, always be thinking about affordable housing. I think that's a, a very important uh, thing for the city to constantly be thinking about. Um, so I 100% agree. And I think that's a project we have to look at in the future. Um, I, I am supportive of this um, idea. And I'm, one question I have is, you know, Mr. Wagner alluded to, why is the public sector not have skin in the game? Um, could you please answer that question for me? Yeah, it's I mean, typically you'd have to find, the, the, the private sector would probably have to own the property. And, and in this case, they're, they're not interested in, in doing that. You know, so this is a, a subdivision that's ready to go. Um, the, the owner is not interested in, in doing that. We haven't been able to find that um, scenario. So, I mean, I think it, it shows you that, um, that, like I mentioned, there's there even though there is a market for it and, and it's um, it, there's a demand for it, the, the risks outweigh, outweigh the rewards. And a lot of people were burned in 2008. And so I think you see some of that still that say, well, man, I put in infrastructure, I was involved in infrastructure, um, not going to do that again. And, and some of our contractors have been have, have aged and um, they're not, they're, the return on investment isn't going to be there for them if they put in infrastructure. Now, could you get some type of cost share with them? We've, we've talked about that. We tried to do that with the housing incentive program. Uh, that was our last effort a couple of years ago, and, and that, that didn't work out very well. So um, had the potential to, um, but it just hasn't. So it's a great question. Um, I, I'm not sure how to, how to get a private developer involved. No, and that's fine. I just, I, I thought it was an important question to at least attempt to answer. Um, I will say this. I think one thing I always, always look at is what is the ROI? What is the return on investment? And in the private sector, you hear the term ROI a lot. 
Uh, I think you can also apply ROI to government, though, because we can and we do invest money. And we also, I think, oftentimes when we're using taxpayer dollars, at least I do, I want to look at what is the return from that investment. And you always are going to have risks, um, in my opinion, in any investment. I've never come across an investment that does not have a risk. It's just, if, if we did, everyone would be in that investment and we would all be making money. It's just not, it just doesn't happen. So you look for the best return from your investment. And when I look at this city subdivision, um, are, and I'm going to be honest, are there some pros and there's, are there some cons to it? Yes. I, I mean, I think if I really wanted to, I could, I could probably nitpick this proposal together and find some flaws. But at the end of the day, we have a housing shortage. And I've said this at uh, Economic Development Board over the last year. I really think EDB needs to find a big project. We need to go big um, or we need to go home. And um, this is a project that I think we could sink our teeth into. And I do believe, especially when I hear you say if you can pre-sell these, um, I think once you pre-sell them, and if you can pre-sell half of them, um, and I hope that's a realistic number, but let's say you can pre-sell half of them, we're already going to see a return at that point. Uh, and that's not counting taxpayer dollars. And so you just have to look at this. In my opinion, you got to separate it from the forest, from the trees here, and go, what's the big picture? And how does this benefit the city? Because at the end of the day, do I want my taxes to go up? Or do I want the tax base of this city to go up? I would prefer the tax base of this city to go up. And so those are things that, I, um, that I'm thinking about and I just, I'm very supportive of this. Mr. Butkey? I, you know, I, Mr. Wagner and I have, and correct me Ed, if I misspeak again, uh, but uh, we've been a proponent of using com uh, community development authority. They've been looking at projects. I don't know if this one fits in that, but for some reason, we haven't done that. And, but that's an avenue maybe. If you could look into that, Josh, Josh and see if there's some value there. Uh, from what I understand, that does not count against the city's debt is what I was always told. God, maybe Mr. Wagner knows more about it than I do. Um, Josh, I just have a couple of comments. Um, um, it's not like we haven't been building stuff. We built a big uh, apartment, a series of apartments up by the high school and another one by uh, Walmart. Uh, we have had a couple of lower level projects that didn't take off for whatever reason. Um, I think that this is a good, um, good location for houses of this type to be built that is going to fit in with the area, and I'm going to support it. Do you have a comment, Mr. Fisher? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, I just wanted to follow up. Um, can you tell me again, how many homes do you think you could pre -sell? I mean, you said over 20. Is 23 sticks in my mind, is that correct? Mm -hmm. 23. Yeah. How many do you think you could pre-sell? Well, the goal, and, and really the, the pre-sale is kind of the catalyst, I think, that makes this work. If we didn't have the pre-sale, 
I still probably wouldn't be here because we were trying to figure out how to make this work where it would be have mitigate the risk and have some cash flow. And to me, that's that's where the private sector is involved is if they can pre-sell the lots and pay that money. So my goal is to come back to the council in two weeks and say, you know what, I've got a commitment of some kind to pre-sell at least 50% of lots, that'd be 12 lots. Um, and if we can do that, I feel that that demonstrates enough interest. And, and by pre-selling, we're not going to get the money up front necessarily, but you could get, let's say you get $5,000 down, um, non-refundable unless the subdivision doesn't happen. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty good commitment, I would say, from people. And if we can get that, I think to me that shows there's enough interest and enough demand that we would have those homes built within a year. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a strong... If I may follow up, Mr. Council President, I would agree. I mean, whenever you see cash flow coming in, you're already looking at a positive ROI, or at least the beginning of a positive ROI. So I think to me, if you can, um, if you, and I'm assuming you're going to have realtors working with you, if you and the realtors can pre-sell this, like you're saying, half, to me at that point, uh, I would agree, the public sector has skin in the game. Um, if we don't see that, I mean, I'll be honest, if you, if you came here saying I, I can't pre-sell anything, I'd have to say no to you, even though it, I, it might have be a good idea. But if you can in two weeks bring crease a, a number and say, we have these amount of, uh, potential buyers and yes, they're going to put $5,000 down at that point, we're already seeing an ROI. It just is a no brainer to me. Mr. Witzel. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of, a lot, I have a, my brain is swirling. The price range of these is surprising to me. And, and I understand your, your comments about it's hard to build a house for cheaper. Um, the thing that I keep hearing about is affordable housing. We need affordable housing. How do we get affordable housing? What is the definition of affordable housing? I don't think there is a state definition. I think it's there, there's it's somewhat subjective, but I I mean I when we talk about doing the affordable housing extension in 2024 with the with TID five, um, we would develop a housing program and define what what affordable housing means. Now I think there's there's certain thresholds when you talk about like LM, a little moderate income and different things like that. There's certain percentages and thresholds, but as far as when the state statute defines um, affordable housing, it doesn't. Uh, for that purpose of affordable housing. So we'd have to come up with some kind of a definition, but I think if you can spend less than 30% of your household income on housing, it's affordable. So I guess my question then comes up, what is the average household income in our city? And, and I, I kind of ask that because I actually think we're sort of living in the in two worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, we're living in a, in a um, medically heavy, uh, very professional world, but we're also living in a, more modest industrial um, type world. And, and it, this, this city is actually a bit of an anomaly in that we do have sort of these, these two quite different sectors of people. And I, I don't know where I sit, <laughs> but I, I, when I look at price tags of these houses, I think there is, there is no way that would be affordable for for me in my in my situation. So, I guess I'm just really not certain what we're talking about for affordable housing. Uh, I think one of the things that we've seen in this city, and this probably goes back a good fifty hundred years even, 
is we've had pockets of development. You know, we've had this area that developed. And when you go down the street, you see house after house after house of Cape Cods because they use the same floor plan or they maybe did a mirror image. You go down this other area and it's, it's you know, house after house of a ranch because at that time it was ranch style. Mm -hmm. And then you go to this other area and it's house after house after house of Ray's Ranch. And I would guess that a lot of that was done because it's cheaper. Yeah, you still have to pay for the, the labor. You still have to pay for the, you know, the cost of the materials. But if you come up with a basic floor plan and yeah, the neighborhood looks kind of similar, it's probably cheaper that way to do that. And I understand your idea of let's divvy up and say we got 10 builders and each take two. Isn't it cheaper just to come up with something and, and stamp out a bunch of houses? You know, again, again, I'm trying to figure out how do we do this so that we get houses on the market, but at the least cost with a good house. The other question I had is, you know, we, we've had a lot of things that, that took place and forgive me, I haven't driven around the city for a while, but you know, we sold 8th Street Park. Did anything develop on that chunk of land by middle school, even though there are utilities right there? Not yet, no. Okay, and then there was a, the thing over by Green Acres Drive off of Washington. Is that completely built up? Uh, there, I believe there's seven lots left in Green Acres. Okay. And then there was that area over by uh, House of the Dove where we had a couple streets that we could easily put in. I know that on Adams, they filled in a bunch of those lots with houses, but have they built the next couple of roads that would be pretty easy, I would think, to put in and develop those? I thought there was somebody that was working on those. Are those done? That was looked at, and that was actually the original city subdivision concept. And um, that they did a wetland delineation, and there's a significant wetland issues uh, for those roads to go through. So you're talking, I think, Drake and Schmidt, and maybe it's not Schmidt, but Drake and I forget what the other one. But yeah, that would be a difficult, um, at least to get them all the way through. There was some significant wetlands kind of in the middle of that property. Yeah, Drake and Columbus, maybe. I don't know, whatever you'd call those. It just seems like there's opportunities for one or two houses for a builder to put up currently with some of these different areas. and. And I, I, I don't want to play favorites, but it would be nice to just say, if we're going to do it, you know, I hear the go big or go home situation. If we're going to do it, let's find somebody that's willing to, to partner with us private sector wise and, and hammer out some houses um, instead of divvying up and, okay, you can get those two lots and build what you like over there. And yeah, we'll give you the, it just, it seems like it's sort of a hodgepodge and maybe it's the desire that everybody has a very unique house and, Maybe they don't want to live in a subdivision that looks very similar, but boy, that that money is just, wow. Do we have any idea right now in the city how many buildable lots are available? We do, um, and, it, and it ranges depending on how you define buildable. So we, we've, we've done a study. I think there's 207 buildable lots in the city, but that's very much inflated because um, only a fraction of that would actually be likely to be built. So a lot of times people buy what's called um, owner-retained lot, so they buy their lot next to them and they're not going to sell it. Um, and, and many times you have lots in an older part of the town that maybe are only 40 to 44 feet wide, you're not going to put a new home up in there most likely. So when you factor all that out, plus wetlands, plus any environmental stuff, okay. uh, I think when, when we called desirable subdivision, meaning a lot that's, that was available, vacant, not owner-retained, had city services and it was within a, in a subdivision that was created since 2000 because that's what we'd consider modern-ish. Um, we have 17 lots. Okay. Final thing, uh, we're closing a, 
a tax incremental district this year. Um, we had decided not to look into utilizing that money for any kind of housing, uh, partly because it was you know, a pretty small increment. Uh, we're looking at another one coming up in the next year, two, three. Uh, we have the potential monies coming from there that can be used for building infrastructure. So if we have a chunk of land, we could use some of that monies. I'm assuming then to... Yeah, so TID 5, I think our projected increment is about five or 600000 which would be a significant yeah. amount. Um, it's not going to help us today, but it's something that we can look forward to. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, even in the staff report, the, the two options we looked at were, were mixed-use mixed use TIF district, which would allow us to do a new, newly platted residential. Those are challenging in a way because you can only only 35% of the of the land can be used for newly platted residential for, for a new subdivision. The other caveat, there has to be other land uses right next to it that are not residential. So it either has to be a mix of commercial or industrial. So you have to find the right location that has a mix of that, plus meeting the 35% residential. And then the other component is it, it, it has a minimum density of three units per acre. So you have to have, there's a lot of pieces and, and we are looking at a mixed use subdivision to address that, but, but because you have to plat it, you have to do the mixed use TIF district, you have to do bid documents. It takes longer to do that. So if we wanted to have lots open this year, um, we have to have something that's pretty close to shovel ready. And the mixed use TIF, we're working on it. We'll, we'll, we'll hope to have something later this year that would address those starter homes, um, but it won't be ready for construction until spring of 2022. Okay. That's all I have. Thank you. Mr. Wagner, you're up again. Thank you. Just something quick then to follow up on uh, Mr. Wetzel's question. Um, there were a couple of ratios that uh, HUD used to use. And when I was in community development, we had to use these ratios when we were dealing with housing. And basically, uh, they tell people that uh, an, apple or a, uh, an acceptable HUD mortgage would be uh, two and a half times their annual income. So, so by, by, by uh, uh, reverse, you can say if it's a $400,000 house, you'd need approximately $160,000 worth of annual income to afford that house. That's what it would be. The other one, um, the, the, the other one is, and when you can play it, the other question you asked was what the average income in Marshfield was. I think the average is somewhere around 53,000 a year. But the, the other one, the, is, uh, Josh, you're gonna have to help me on this because you know I got a mental block between mean and median, okay? Uh, but the other, the, the one, the, the number at which there are just as many making below that number as there are above that number is about 48,000 a year. Yeah, the median is that, but I think the, I think the mean household income is around what you said. Yeah. About 53. I'd have to, I don't know that for sure, but that sounds about right. But again, we're not talking about affordable housing here. And obviously there's a, there is a disparity in the, in the wage gap in, in Marshfield and Right now, this specific project would focus on the higher end so you can attract those folks that are coming to, you know, to the clinic, to rail, to, to the executives. Um, and then those homes would be moved up and then people could fill in on in those homes that they're leaving. So it's not a perfect solution. It's not a, you know, it's not, it's not a magic uh, bullet here by any means, but this is what we, we've spent a few years kind of working at this, um, piecing it together. And, and finally, we, we think this is a project that can work. And, Again, the, the, the catalyst is the presale. And if I come back and say, I got two presale lots pre-sold uh, in two weeks, uh, th then I'd have a hard time supporting this as well. But um, you know, if we have to push it back, 
uh, I'd ask for some more time. But I think I, I do think that there's an interest. I do think that, that um, we'll be back here in two weeks with with that number. And I think that if, if we can get at least half of them sold, I think that's enough interest. And in my opinion, it may, may, may not be for everybody, but um, that, that's my goal. Yeah, I'll agree with Josh on that, that uh, the proposal we're looking at here is not for low income housing or lower lower uh, level of housing. We're looking at a proposal for higher end houses. Um, and uh, we can't solve all of the housing situation in Marshfield tonight, but we can look at this. So I'll uh, ask that we sort of direct our attention towards that in our comments, Mr. Butkey. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I'm I'm thinking I would like to have uh, Ashley come up again and, and see uh, state again what she's seeing, what people are asking for out there. We talk about the clinic a lot, and and there's there's other ones out there, but I mean those those are facts. If you could, Ashley, please. Sure, I was feverishly taking notes. Um, but a, a couple areas is, um, I think it comes to a surprise for people that don't do this every day, where activity is as far as the affordability. Um, so that higher end is kind of where it's at today. Um, and we're, and we're, we're just throwing people out the door. So I'll give you an example. Basically my last five listings that were at 380 went for 20 to $40,000 over asking and they have 20 showings on them. So that's 20 showings. So I literally looked on my phone. I listed a property for 384.9 at 10 o'clock this morning. There's 15 showings the next 24 hours. So if that doesn't tell you that, that there's people in that price range, I'm not sure what, what can. Um, but again, it goes back to what this does. I understand affordable housing. I definitely understand that. But I'm also married to a contractor. So I know what it costs to build a house. My husband typically tells people that he can't build anything for less than 300,000. So what it is today. So we're not really that far off when we're talking about 350. Um, you know, so where I think that that then comes into play is that, you know, somebody might not be able to buy a new house for 300,000, but the person that bought the $350,000 new house and now buy that person's $225,000 house might not be brand new, but it's an option for them. Um, I understand the private sector, to be honest. Um, I tried to make this work three years ago. I couldn't make it work. I mean, again, we went back to um, the banks don't like to give to private people. Um, you know, if I had a million dollars in the bank account, that'd be great, but I don't. Um, and not, not, you know, I think there's not other contractors here. I mean, it's just not feasible for one person. Um, you know, it'd be great if a developer came in, but, you know, that also would be unfortunate for all of our local subs. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, we talk about splitting up the lots, um, and there's been a lot of spec homes that have been built in the last two years. And I kind of went through and, um, Woodstock, um, has built spec homes, Faber, Frederick Construction, Meyer, Fry, Nikolai, um, I think you guys are doing duplexes. Um, you know, that's a, quite a few, few people. And I, I tried to go through to try to remember how many they built and each one built approximately two a year. Um, and that was three, four, five, six, seven, eight contractors. So those contractors were actually building them without a, without a buyer. It, they built them so that they were finished for somebody to buy. And I did them myself. Um, so, right, we just build them and people buy them. So I think that that's a, another avenue that we really didn't touch on at all in this whole part of, of this um, building new houses is I think that there's a whole other avenue of 
spec homes, which was, you know, um, important probably in the early 2000s, maybe. Um, and that's how people bought homes. They didn't have to make the decisions. They knew up front what the costs were. Um, so I, I think that we might be sorely mistaken as to, um, I understand what the average income might be and how that definitely is um, offsetting to what these price points are. But we do have to remember that we do have a very large employer here that um, has uh, large incomes. But you also have to remember that um, people have saved a lot over the last couple of years, especially with COVID. So I know we like to reference the clinic a lot, but it's not just the clinic. I mean, you get two people that have two solid incomes and they can afford a property. So you look at, I did $400,000, 20% down, 3% interest rate, just principal and interest, it's $1,300. A $400,000 house for $1,300 principal and interest. Or otherwise they can go down and pay $1,100 for a rental behind Walmart. So, you know, what are they going to choose to do? Build a new home for $200 more a month or live in an apartment? So we have to remember that when we're talking about those price points, you know, our, our rentals are getting up there in cost where it is somewhat comparable to a mortgage. Um, you know, and I, I don't have any issues with the presale. I don't know about two weeks. <laughs> it's a little busy right now, but maybe 30 days. Um, but you know, Jenny and um, Rita and myself, we already have uh, people, especially being married to a, a builder, I mean, we already have people that call us daily. Is there anywhere to build in town? And I say no, because there's not. You know, when we talk about the available lots, the other issue of that is that those aren't listed lots. Those aren't like lots that I know where to go to to find them. You know, there's like five listed lots right now, and most of them aren't feasible. I mean, some of them even say that, you know, it'd have to be more or less like a tiny home in order to build on them. So, um, you know, as contractors, I think you also have the concern of, building a brand new house next to two $80,000 houses. I mean, that's probably not the most ideal situation either. Um, so I know that it's outside of what everyone is probably used to, but I guess the reason that I am a little bit of a bulldog is because I go through this every single day for three years. And now we're at the point where I'm just frustrated because we are losing people. And I'll put together more numbers, you know, that I kind of know what your concerns are. I'll work on it further for the next two weeks. But, you know, I also think Dr. Murley would be a great, I'll have him, you know, come in. I talk to him on a regular basis as well. And he's got concerns as well. But, you know, when, he, when he's hiring people, he's looking out like a whole nother year, right? So if we're looking out a whole nother year and he still doesn't have any options to provide for, um, you know, it's not just doctors, it's, um, you know, nurse practitioners, whatever it might be that are coming, um, residents, traveling nurses, we don't have anywhere to, to you know, uh, house them. It, it is a concern for him as well. Um, so I'd love to have his input too. But I do think pre-selling them, it's either going to pre-sell, in my opinion, there'll be some um, there'll be some buyers, but I also think there'll be some contractors that scoop those up. And what you might not know is that there are two areas outside of city limits that have gone this route. Um, one was on Ives and one is currently on Man. Um, and I believe the man, I don't know if it's been heard through the grapevine, the majority of the lots were sold, but um, just outside of town, they put up a sign for 20 lots, I don't know, 23 lots. Um, those are maybe one and a half to two acre lots. Um, and almost all of them are sold. And that was in a two month time frame, just in the last 60 days. So I know that um, that's a lot to take on, and but I, I'm confident that it would happen. Um, I think that Josh and I, um, and Rita and Jenny and others, can work together with what your concerns are so we can show it to you on a, a different level. But um, I have to kindly disagree in that, um, that that price point isn't feasible here. Thank you. Mr. Fisher. 
Uh, thank you. Before you go, Ashley, um, I have one quick question for you specifically, and that is, um, you said you know thirty days would be, in your opinion, more reasonable. Uh, do you think in those thirty days, in your professional opinion, twelve homes could be free sold? Twelve lots. Yeah, twelve lots. Yep. yep. So those twelve lots, you think, could be pre sold in that four week time frame? I do. All right. With that, then, I'm going to uh, make a motion to have Josh move forward with the city's subdivision um, contingent pre-sale of 12 homes uh, with Josh returning in four weeks. Second to that, second by Mr. Rosenditch. Any comments on that? Josh? I would like to, the opportunity to come back in two weeks, though, I think, uh, and I don't want to disagree with Ashley, but if I can get it done sooner, the, the timeline is kind of critical for the back end to get this construction going um, by mid-October. That's kind of the sweet spot to get the road done, get basements in. If we wait another two weeks, we're looking at November. Um, might be more challenging, but if I can come back, I'll, I'll give an update either way. And if, um, if, you can do it happen, if you could do it faster than what we're asking for, Josh, that's even better. Okay, just on, and kind of the authorization to let Dan's team and Tom, Dan and Tom's team to kind of move forward would be what we're looking for. Any other comments? Please vote. That motion passes nine to one. Thank you. <clears throat> Item M, receive and report, I got to put my glasses on. Receive report and consider options regarding requests not acted on upon by the plan commission to rezone property located at 307 East 21st Street, parcel 33-06265 from SR3 single family residential to TR6 two family residential <coughs> presented by Bryce Hembrook, city planner. Thank you, Council President. So uh, this item is kind of different than how we typically uh, do a rezoning. Um, so the applicant applied for a rezoning uh, request for his property at 307 East 21st Street. Uh, there was a public hearing for this at the April Plan Commission meeting. Uh, during this meeting, the item was discussed and a motion was made to approve. However, there was no second to approve the motion. So uh, essentially the plan commission did not officially recommend approving nor denying the request. Uh, and according to the zoning code, uh, the common council shall consider the recommendation of the plan commission and the common council uh, may take final action on the request. Failure to receive a written report from the plan commission would not invalidate the um, proceedings or actions of the common council. Essentially, the zoning code uh, does not outline the exact process of how to proceed uh, when we don't have a, um, a, you know, a recommendation that was approved. And thus, uh, the application seeking a rezoning is now before the council for its consideration and direction. So um, staff, set, or staff talked with uh, the city attorney and looked into options for the common council. Uh, and he suggested that the, um, the three options that council would have is to one, hold a new public hearing, Two, direct staff uh, to pre prepare an ordinance for uh, your consideration. Or three, take no action on the application or in effect deny the application. And then, uh, so staff's recommendation to the plan commission was to approve the request and to direct staff to uh, create an ordinance uh, for your consideration. Thus, uh, that would be in line with 
uh, recommendation number two under the options in the staff report. Thank you. Do we have a motion? Motion by Mr. Fire, second. Second by Mr. Rosenditch. Which, which, what's your motion, Mr. Fire? To follow staff recommendation? Okay, staff recommendation was to direct the staff to prepare an ordinance, uh, approve the rezoning and direct the staff to prepare an ordinance for their consideration. Comments, Mr. Butkey. Bryce, was there at the plan commission, did uh, people have any concerns there about this uh, rezoning? I, you know, without getting the details, I, I, I didn't watch a plan commission, but could yeah. you enlighten me on what was discussed? Yeah, and so I also included the minutes from the, the meeting as well. Uh, there was a letter that was sent in uh, from a nearby uh, property owner that was concerned about how that would affect his property value, uh, how, that, how it could affect traffic concerns. Um, and that they were also concerned with some of the duplexes that were constructed down the street. Um, that was from a different builder though. Uh, so those are some concerns that were brought up. Uh, another person called in and explained those concerns as well, pretty much the same topics. Um, so th that's what was uh, discussed. And then the plan commission also talked about, uh, they were wondering about if there would be an increase in traffic. Uh, they were wondering about um, you know, would there be traffic in the future? But we told them that this area is pretty much built out for the most part. Um, and there was also one concern that there's been a lot of duplexes uh, constructed in the last three or four years or so. So those were all discussed. And as I mentioned, uh, first there was a, I'll, I'll take a step back. First, there was a request to table on the item because they also wanted to see a site plan. Uh, we informed them that for rezoning, we don't uh, review site plans because they're not stuck to that development. Um, and then, so that that original motion failed, uh, then there was a motion to approve, and then um, it lacked a second motion, uh, and there was no discussion for that motion. So okay. it's kind of a unique situation that we haven't really seen since I've been here, um, and that's why we took it back to the Common Council for you guys' uh, direction. Okay, thank you. Mr. Fire, did you have a comment? I think the traffic, the traffic situation on 21st Street is uh, caused by the condition of 17th Street. If 17th Street was in better shape, you wouldn't see as much traffic on 21st Street. Because I, I, I sit there a lot and they come down 21st and they immediately go up Maple. So there's, it's, they're going around 17th Street so they don't lose their front end and their alignment. So. Mr. Whistle. <clears throat> I just want to make sure everybody remembers Mr. Fire's comments just now when we start talking <laughs> in two days. Um, Bryce, as I'm looking at um, your your picture here, and then I also jumped onto the city's uh, GIS website, which I really enjoy using. Uh, I'm saying that uh, for the most part, that entire area is SR3, with the exception, if I'm correct, with what looks to be four, possibly five, if two lots are really narrow there, of the, um, the proposed TR6, which allows for multi-family. There's also at the end of that stretch there, uh, four properties that are SR4. Can you explain what the SR4, how that differs from SR3? Uh, the difference is that SR4 uh, allows a higher density than SR3. Um, so the minimum lot width is uh, smaller than the SR4, same with the lot area. Okay. 
when I actually click on one of those SR4s, it says on the uh, GIS viewer here, single family resident and two family residential. So those are potentially duplexes even though. So that's actually incorrect. Um, oh. I've noticed that on the map as well too. Um, so the official title in the zoning code is uh, SR4 and SR6 are single family residential. Um, on our GIS, we have noticed that it says single and two family. Um, and I guess we just never changed that. So okay. to answer your question, it is only for single family residential in the SR4. So really we're looking at one lot here kind of in the middle that would differ from a lot of the others with the exception of four other properties on that road. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so as you kind of mentioned, there's TR6 to the southeast and then uh, a few properties over. The other thing that we look at uh, when we review this is what does the future land use map tell us? And that uh, informs us that in this district, it would be medium density residential. And the uh, ideal land uses would be single family, two family, and townhouses. Obviously, you would have to have the correct zoning district to build those, um, but that would be a uh, ideal land use in that district. Also, the um, recommended density would be three to 10 units per acre. I wanna say that the proposed um, uh, dwelling, or sorry, the proposed density would be about six or seven units per acre if a duplex was put on this property. So we don't, we don't just look at what the current zoning districts are surrounding it. We also look at what the uh, comprehensive plan or the future land use map is telling us is a, a suitable um, land use in that area. And do you really think that we're going to be moving into a more densely um, populated area in this section? Like they would tear down those houses and put up something more dense or? No, and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, it's not necessarily recommending that yeah, this area should convert from single family to two family. It's just saying uh, on average, there's gonna be medium density residential in this area. Sorry, I keep hitting that. Whether it's a single family or two family, um, it's gonna be more dense than, you know, out by the university where there's, you know, uh, you know, a third of an acre, a third of an acre is a common lot size out there. You're not gonna see that as much in this area. Thank you. Any other questions? Seeing none, please vote. That vote carry passes eight to two. Move on to item N, a request to appoint me, Council President Nick Paschal, to the Plan Commission and to serve as the Commission's chairperson presented by Josh Miller, Development Services Director. Josh. Thank you, Council President. Um, yeah, so typically the chairperson of the com uh, Planning Commission is the mayor. Um, and um, if that position is gonna remain vacant for you know up to a year possibly, uh, obviously we'd like to have it filled. It, it serves the public better to have uh, you know, a full complement of its, its members. Uh, the Planning Commission has kind of a unique position in where you have to have four uh, affirmative votes to pass something, not just a majority. So it's kind of a, a I think it's a, it's in our code, it might be in statute too. So um, I think um, Alder Person Peschel would be a great addition to that and, and serving as council president, he would uh, could fulfill the role of chairperson quite well on the plan commission. So uh, staff would uh, recommend, and we do have a plan commission meeting next week uh, already. So um, and we've had a discussion about um, procedures and, and plan commission um, what, what, what you review with the plan commission. So I think uh, staff would recommend uh, appointing Alderperson Nick Bachel to uh, serve as the 
Planning Commission and, and serve as the chairperson of the Planning Commission. And we'd ask that you suspend the rules because we do have a meeting next week. Okay, so if that's something you're in favor of, the first motion I would need would be a motion to suspend the rules. That's your motion, Mr. Wagner? Okay, and we have a second for Mr. Fire. Is there any comments on that? Seeing none, please vote. Mr. Hanlon. That motion carries unanimously. And then I need a second motion to for the appointment. Motion by Mr. Witzel and a second by Mr. Fisher. Any comments on that? Seeing none, please vote. And that motion carries unanimously. Thank you. Okay, we're to item number, item O. Adjourned to closed session under Wisconsin statutes, chapter 1985, subsection one, sub G, conferring with legal counsel for the governmental body who is rendering oral or written advice concerning strategy to be adopted by the body with respect to litigation in which it is or is likely to become involved, specifically status of pending legal action with Haas Sons Incorporated and to adjourn to closed session under Wisconsin statutes 1985, subsection one, sub E, deliberating or negotiating the purchase of public properties, the investing of public funds, or conducting other specified public business whenever competitive or bargaining reasons are involved. This would be for the possible acquisition of property for a future city subdivision. We have a motion from Mr. Witzel and a second from Mr. Rosenditch. Please vote. Mr. Hendler? Motion carries, we're in closed session.